If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, you're listening to Green Dreamer Podcast, which is primarily a community-supported show made possible by listeners like you. By now, you've probably already heard me talk about our minimum Patreon goal that we're aiming to meet by August in order to continue the show past this summer. For now, we are planning to take a pause on the show in the middle of August as I evaluate how to continue the show in a financially feasible manner. And hopefully, if we meet our first Patreon goal this week, we'll be able to bring the 2020 fall season of Green Dreamer podcast to you in September, still made publicly available without a paywall as it is now to keep it accessible for everyone. So if you've learned from Green Dreamer, plan to keep listening to our other episodes and want to help us publish our fall season of the show, please consider chipping in if you can after prioritizing your own needs and those of your loved ones, starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And of course, to our past and current contributors, I see you and I appreciate you so much for helping to realize our first 200 plus episodes so far. I feel really called to continue doing this work and hopefully together we can keep growing this community of green dreamers, keep inspiring more critical and intersectional thinking, and keep scaling our synergistic regenerative impact on the planet. Thank you so much again, and it is greendreamer.com slash support to join us on Patreon if you can. One's maybe political affiliation is now becoming a de facto standard for how people are starting to view an entire person's value set. And I really just felt like it's a real misnomer that's people just being lazy. It's letting our, our social media feeds, our news feeds, the people we talk to, we're all becoming mass you know, siloed into our own echo bubbles and only talking to people we agree with and share opinions. And it didn't used to be that way. That was Kevin Wilhelm, the CEO of Sustainable Business Consulting and the author of How to Talk to the Other Side, Finding Common Ground in the Time of Coronavirus, Recession and Climate Change. I don't know about you, but whenever I talk to people that just have such different deep-seated beliefs and worldviews than I do, 
It's so easy to either just not want to engage at all or to immediately get defensive in trying to prove my points. And that usually doesn't end up well, right? Because it just becomes two people talking at each other rather than having a productive discussion that moves the needle forward and deepens our mutual understanding of one another. So I've been really interested in learning how we can most effectively talk to people outside of this sustainability bubble. Because to scale our positive impact and grow this movement, I think that's what we need, you know, to cast this net wider and to put aside our differences in the name of furthering our common goals of healthy communities, healthy environments, and safe spaces for everybody. So I loved this conversation because of the practical takeaways that I got, and I really hope that you can apply these tips and learning lessons to your own life as well. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. My background is is pretty varied. I tell people never to follow the path that I followed because the term sustainability wasn't really around when I was in college. And even when I was applying to graduate school to get my MBA, I remember interviewing, telling people, hey, I just want to do business for good. And uh, people were just like, yeah, we don't really do that. You know, so (laughs) it was one of those things where I kind of knew that there was something there. and, And I always had known that there was smart business in terms of reducing energy, reducing waste, reducing any cost that was unnecessary could also be better for the environment. And if you made intentional procurement and purchasing decisions to purchase local and sustainable, you could do the right thing. But, you know, it just wasn't really in the lexicon at the time. And so um, so when I started, you know, my business, it was really one of the first out in the, the region to really do so, um, really kind of leading into the fact that there's a business case to be made for sustainability. And so I kind of leaned into that because that was more of where my background was. Right. So you've written quite a few books and your newest one is titled How to Talk to the Other Side. I'm curious what concerns or frustrations you had that inspired you to write and publish a book on this, especially right now. In general, there's been a breakdown in our civic discourse that we've all noticed, and it's really accelerated here over the last four years or so. And I think that one's maybe political affiliation is now becoming a de facto standard for how people are starting to view an entire person's value set. And I really just felt like it's a real misnomer that's people just being lazy. It's letting our our social media feeds, our news feeds, the people we talk to, we're all becoming mass, you know, siloed into our own echo bubbles and only talking to people we agree with and share opinions. And it didn't used to be that way. And I grew up in a, a small town and rural town in Ohio, and the town was pretty split between Republicans and Democrats. And But we didn't identify ourselves as that. You know, first we were from the town, we were Americans, you know, religion is another one, but certainly politics wasn't you know, it was one small part of who we were. It wasn't the defining characteristic. And just as I've seen through my business work, where I've traveled all throughout the, the country, we've worked with 165 different organizations in about 30 different states. And 
you know, people have a variety of different opinions, but the reality is everybody is, is basically decent. You know, people are, are good people. They all basically want the same things. But when we let these buzzwords and we let these trigger words dominate our, our, our conversations, then we can't really get focused on the solutions that we all have. And so I had been really wrestling with this idea. And, and one of the things that my company, Sustainable Business Consulting, and, and all of my staff were really known for being kind of translators, people who come in from a neutral third party that can step in between climate skeptics and people who, who are advocating for climate change and not only hear what each side is saying, but translate it so that everyone can kind of understand on the other side why people feel the way and then look for those common ground solutions. And so that was kind of the impetus for the book. And then, of course, when COVID-19 broke out and the economy fell apart, the calling really came to Natalie and I to, to rewrite and refocus our entire book with that in mind of the reality of today of if we're going to have a situation where wearing a mask becomes politicized, you know, if we're going to have a thing about going to to work, it becomes politicized, then we're really as a society going to break down pretty quick along partisan lines and we can't afford to do that. And so this book was really about identifying win-win strategies and ways that people can come together and find common ground. So you mentioned political identity being something that has been causing divide. What are some other common others that exist in our dominant culture today that we often use to pit people against one another with? There's kind of endless ones out there, but what we focused on with this book were ones that I, you know, kind of ones that I was most familiar with. The Republican-Democrat divide, you've got the urban-rural divide, you know, in terms of the kind of us-them feeling kind of cultural war. We talked about climate deniers or skeptics and advocates, those who, you know, see it as an existential threat that needs to take action. We talked about business versus environmentalists. We talked about people in the fossil fuel industry versus renewable energy and then we even broke it down into the military versus environmentalists. And with each one of these, we tried to show when you when you pull back the onion a little bit and you start peeling down layers and uncovering what people's anxieties are, there's a lot of common sense, practical solutions that can help both sides achieve what they want, truly. And what gets confusing is when people get into that quick trigger stereotyping, you know, I'm not going to agree with you because, you know, you support this political party or that political party. And so we tried to touch on those. We touch a little bit on some other issues, but obviously, you know, you've got pro-life, pro-choice movements, you've got anti-immigrant movements, you've got pro-gun, anti, you know, gun right. control movements. We didn't, I didn't want to get, you know, obviously you couldn't boil the ocean and go into all those. Where I tried to go is in the mindset of people that are trying to find common ground right now, where can they do that right. and not start a cultural war? But where are the, the true win-win solutions that I experienced, with clients I've worked with, and with kind of the research and interviews that we, we had that could you know, really push the path forward positively? Right. And I often get this feeling that our differences are often amplified as a tool of division. 
maybe totally. by those in power to take on this divide and conquer sort of strategy because we really have a lot more things in common down to our very core with our shared humanity compared to our differences that that do make us who we are but are th- less central and vital to our well-being compared to the things and values that really unite us. So I'm wondering if you have a sense of why we tend to fixate on our differences and let that get in the way of our mutual care, empathy, and ability to achieve our shared goals. Camille, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of that we have more in common. I mean, one of the one of the things with the research, the countless interviews, the focus groups we ran, um, and even just around my, my own personal travels around the country and around the globe is that when you boil it down, most people want they want to be safe. They want to have a decent job. They don't want to get sick or die. You know, they they want opportunity for their kids and a good education and, you know, the ability to kind of retire and be respected. I mean, it, it kind of just stops there. And whether I'm in a, a rural village in Kashmir on the line of control between Pakistan and India, or I'm in a lake in Malawi, or I'm in central Ohio, it's pretty much the same things that people want. But you're absolutely right. This this echo chamber, the reason why kind of the division is there, a couple of reasons that I think. One, you know, kind of the squeaky wheel makes the most noise type of thing. People in the middle and the central who kind of are willing to listen to people on both sides, they don't draw ratings. They're not controversial. They're not going to be something that's going to show up on MSNBC or Fox News. And what we've even seen is that Facebook was, you know, found yesterday that they're making lots more money by advertising divisive ads and, you know, pushing people into their corners because they stay online. Because I think for a lot of people, times are so tough, whether you're on the right or the left, everyone's having a tough time culturally and economically. And there's comfort in going to your news feed and going to turning on the news source that you like that agrees with you because everyone's really busy. We're all tired. And especially during this, this pandemic, everyone's completely exhausted. They want to get out of their house or cooped up. And so they don't want to turn on the TV and have things that they're going to disagree with. They don't want to open up their social media feeds and see a lot of stuff that's telling them they're wrong. They want the comfort. They want to feel good. They want to, they want to go to the place that's going to make them feel better and that's why the divisiveness is, is winning out right now is because, A, there's profit motive for the people behind the scenes that are doing the market, the micro targeting and segmentation. And B, people just generally want to, you know, they want to feel better and around people that they like and agree with rather than getting into a large, you know, civil discourse in their free time. So when you looked into this subject of communicating with those on the other side, what did you find as the common ways that people typically approach the other side with and why might that not be helpful or be counterproductive? Well, I think on both sides, people are trying to win the argument. They think they need to convince the other side. And if anything, I found through the 15 years of work that we've done with SBC is that you can, if you're, say, someone who's going to a company and you're trying to help them on their climate planning and their, stra- their climate strategy for reduction, but people in the room hate Al Gore, they think it's a giant hoax and that climate change is not caused by man, you can still find common ground. You just don't have to engage with them exactly on where they want to have the argument. You know, I think that 
I go to great lengths in the book to talk about say, on the, on the, the climate initiative is one, but on several others where people have kind of, you know, when I walk in as Kevin Wilhelm from Sustainable Business Consulting, somebody who's on the right or, you know, is a climate skeptic, um, it's rural America is kind of ready for a fight They're, They, they've already kind of figured out who I am and what, what I'm going to be about. And they want to argue about it. Mm. And when I don't engage on that, when I listen and when I say, you know, tell me, tell me where this is coming from. Let, let me hear your true anxieties. And I empathize with them. Then they're like, Oh my gosh, you hear me. You're so different than everyone else. Your firm is so different than everyone else. And that you, you're looking to find solutions that make my life better. And I think that's that's one of the things that gets you know missed certainly by the environmental movement is they've been in this mindset of like hey let's um, and I for clear understanding I'm a I'm a complete environmentalist. However, there's things that the environmental movement have, have done that they've pushed people into a corner on the other side. We mentioned in the book that 1998 or excuse me 1988 the Republican presidential candidate George. Herbert Walker Bush ran as the environmental president. That's unthinkable nowadays. And, you know, because people like want to have that argument about where they differ right off the bat, I spend the first 20 pages of the book talking about ways we can find common ground first. You know, so if you think about it, when you get into a conversation with someone at a party or at a holiday or, you know, just casual conversation, you engage on food, you talk about sports, you talk about where you're from, you know, you talk about places you've traveled and you can find common ground. And once you start having those connections, when you build that foundation, then you can get to the more controversial stuff. But I think right now, both sides just want to convince the other side that they're right and the other one's going to wrong, you know, wrong and that they need to like figure it out as opposed to first understanding where people are and that shared humanity, that what we have in common that helps lower the temperature so that then you can have a productive conversation. Right. And I think that definitely is a skill set that we have to learn and hone in on because I feel like at least instinctively from personal experience, whenever I come across someone who I view as on the other side with a sense of reality that I don't agree with, that may have been shaped by an authority that I deem uncredible, I immediately feel this urge to want to convince them of something or to reason with my viewpoints. So I guess if going into these controversial conversations, wanting to change their worldviews or opinions may not be so helpful, people might ask, what is the point of even engaging at all if if they're not going to listen to me? And what should our mindset and end goals be instead as we approach these discussions? Yeah, I, I totally hear you. I mean, it's it's really difficult when you hear someone say something completely and technical to what you believe or what you think or what you know are to be facts. And you want to just immediately counter them and show them why they're, why they're wrong and you're right. But that's not helpful. I liken it to religion. You know, all religions are pretty much trying to go to the same place. Like they all have the same ends in mind. It's the how they get there is a different. And it's very similar to what we're trying to accomplish in society is it we get caught up in the how and in the arguments as opposed to focusing on what we're trying to, where we're trying to get to. And so I have come across this all the time when, you know, someone uh, who says, well, I don't believe in science. And then immediately someone feels like, well, let me hit you with more science and more facts mm -hmm. and figures and that'll do it. What they're really saying is they have an emotional, 
you know, because most people vote and most people think and they rationalize on emotion, not on reason. And I think what happens is, is everyone hears something and then they try and reason with that person. And we go to great lengths throughout the book. You know, the, the first section is all about finding common ground. The, the second section is six different case studies of how do you go through and have these difficult conversations. And then the last part is just basically difficult, how to have a difficult conversation one-on-one. And I can tell you as someone who's kind of, you know, more left-leaning, but I know that when I get in a room with extreme progressives, I feel very uncomfortable. I know when I get in a room with extreme conservatives, I feel very uncomfortable. And a lot of times they're in there and they're wanting to convince me that they're right and I need to just come along. And instead of doing that, I try and go, okay, well, tell me what is really at the core of your anxiety. Let's, let's, what, what is it? Are you afraid about your job? Are you afraid about your income? Are you afraid about the change in culture, how it's going to impact your kids, your, your family, your day to day? How are these things going to impact you? And once you start hearing what is that really boils down to, then you have that aha moment. You go, okay, this really isn't about you not believing science. It's really that you're worried that by believing in science and supporting science on some issue, that your job in a year or two will be eliminated because there's going to be a change in public policy. When you hear that, you go, okay, well, let's find a way that we can make sure that there, if there is a change in public policy, that you can still you know, have a, uh, a good quality of life, a job, and maybe even a better life. And just by flipping that switch, all of a sudden you can have that productive conversation. But when you're trying to convince somebody with you know, facts and data, it's just not, it's never going to work. I like it, bring it back to the religion. You can't go to a Hindu and convince them that they should be a Muslim. You can't go to a Muslim and convince them they should be a a Buddhist. You can't go to a Christian and, and, you know, who's born again and convince them they should be an atheist. And everyone thinks that they've got the solution, but it's just not going to work that way. So maybe our instinctive urge in wanting to reason with other people comes from our desire to want to be heard. And on the flip side, when other people are resistant to hearing us out, that might come from them wanting to be heard first as well. So that is another shared part of our humanity is we just want to be heard and we want to be acknowledged for how we feel. So when we go into conversations, we can certainly remember that this is something that we share in common, but I am conscious of this part of us as humans. Therefore, I can extend this graciousness to them in allowing them to speak first and for me to hear them out first, because that together might be able to help us get further. Absolutely. You know, and our, our, our third section of our book is really how to have that conversation. And we really hit it over the head that you first must seek to understand before you're understood. And most people, like you said, want to tell their tell their side of the story and get really you know animated. 
And if you just listen and empathize and ask some, some questions and, and when you hear about someone's personal experience, if they're, you know, so fired up about something, there's usually some pain or some loss or some issue that, that's, that's hit them and impacted them. And just by empathizing and listening, you, you'll be able to, to hear them in a different light. And then by them being heard, their, their, like, their tone will come down, their volume will come down, their, their, their temperature and kind of the conversation will come down. And then you can have a productive conversation. I mean, I, I have a, a small child and I'm always like, you know, you can't reason with a kid when they're having a temper tantrum. <laughs> you got to let the temper tantrum burn out. And then you can go back and have a conversation with them about what they did. But I think we, as adults, we've all forgotten that. Like mm. when people are ready to have that temper tantrum and get so angry, when those protesters on Michigan, you know's capital are there with armed guns, you don't go there and have a conversation about gun control or why <laughs> they should be doing, you know, why they need to be putting masks. You got to go there with a mask and say, tell me why you're here. What, what, what is your concern? You know, when they say, well, my business is threatened, you know, I don't have any customers, my you know, my livelihood, it's a family business for 80 years. It's going to go out of business. When you start having that conversation and say, oh, man, you know, and then you can start relating. You can talk about your business and, and other, you know, experiences you've had where those can connect. And then they can start talking to you and you ask where they're from and and what's their day to day and, and what would be a solution that could help them. And you start having these conversations, you realize you're not that far off in what you want, but by them showing up with guns and you showing up with, you know, a face mask, you're already like at ends. And so I believe that you really have to, and it's, it's really difficult sometimes mm. to, to want to listen to some people, because I know that in the circles I am in, and I should say my family is pretty much you know, my immediate family might be on one side and my extended family is completely polarized on the opposite. So think of one half watches Fox News and one <laughs> half watches MSNBC. And I love my family, but you have to find a way that you can go in and, and have a productive conversation. And if you just immediately are like, oh, well, you know, they're, they're a Democrat or they're a Trump supporter, you just, it, it's not going to get you there. You, you got to go, you got to like peel the onion and it's really, it's, it's time consuming and it's more difficult, but that's the only way we're going to actually get there is, is by, you know, seeking to find that common ground. Mm. And I think this goes back to people are more likely to listen to people that they trust and respect. So when we're able to at least gain some of that trust and to show people that we care about them as a human being first, then they're more likely to trust us and be willing to hear us out as well. So definitely lots to think about here. And something that might make this especially challenging is so much of our communication today is in short form on social media, right. not face-to-face -face where we can express ourselves fully or take cue from other people's nonverbal communication, which is so important. There's also this sense of anonymity that comes from communicating through the screen, which I feel like sometimes emboldens people to be more rude, condescending, and dehumanizing in their language compared to how they yeah. would normally communicate in real life when meeting a yeah. stranger. So what can you share in terms of how we might be able to approach these types of conversations in more productive manners? Yeah, you nailed it on the head. Certainly, you know, it used to be that you'd, you'd have a, a in-person conversation. If you couldn't, you'd have it on phone and then you'd start an email chain. Now it's like those are so antiquated 
that pretty much people are corresponding just by text, by, you know, instant message or even responding to someone's social media post. And I was just, you know, doing some reflection this morning of the the gentleman in Minneapolis who was killed by those those four police officers. And I'm reading through my social media feed and people are on all you know sides of the issue and you've got people just saying, this needs to stop. Somebody needs to do something and just over and over and over again. And I'm just thinking, you know, if we were in a room together and everyone's just saying, somebody needs to do something, eventually someone would go, okay, well, what should we do? You know, and people would start coming up with ideas and solutions and ways they could engage and mobilize. But because everyone's just feels like, well, I did my part. I, I shared or I liked something on social media or I commented on it, like I'm done. And you're right that people can get, because of the anonymity, they can get ruder, they can get louder, they can say things that they would never say to someone in public. And I, I don't really have a solution for that. What my solution that I talk about in the book is trying to get out of those unproductive conversations. I mean, I, I can tell you, uh, I have two people in mind that every single conversation, you could be talking about puppies, you could be talking about sports, you could be talking about the weather, and somehow Trump comes up. And it just comes up every time. And I, you know, I said to him, like, you know, with all the time and energy you're spending talking to people that already agree with you, what if you took one-tenth of that time and reached out to people that you don't know or people that you maybe disagreed with and tried to find some common ground and work towards some productive solutions. And people just don't want to do that. That that's it's difficult. But yeah, that's that's what's necessary. And I think that you're so right in that, I mean, just even in my responses, you know, today to that gentleman who was killed, I was just like, I started to read response and then I was like, this doesn't at all reflect my total depth of feelings and thoughts about this. So let me pull back until I can actually write something that truly explains so that people don't misconstrue one way or another what I'm trying to say. And even I've had, um, you know, when we put this book out, you know, I mean, the whole idea is about finding common ground. How do we solve, you know, these massive crises in front of us, the coronavirus, the economic recession, climate change. How do we solve these things? And yet I would, I just by the title saying how to talk to the other side, I was getting trolled on social media saying, oh, well, who is this guy? And people are just slamming me and saying, wow. you know, why didn't you talk about this or that? And more often than not, they actually were saying exactly what I was advocating for in my book but they didn't actually open the book. They had already prejudged where I was coming from. People would say, oh, well, this doesn't represent my, you know, my feeling, you know, you know he's a Republican and he's a Democrat. And I, I was kind of blown away by that. And I would see these, these posts from people and I would respond with, well, just, just read the book. And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, not all of us have the, the financial resources to read your book or the time or, you know, but this guy is sitting here slamming me on social media and he's never even opened a page. He's already made his snap judgment. So I took it as a learning lesson of I'm going to engage with this person and I'm going to say, okay, I hear you. So, so let me hear your thoughts. And the whole thing was this guy thought that we needed to have a chapter on oligarchy versus democracy. And my response was, yes, and it's not in this book. That's in someone else's book. So don't yell at me because it's not <laughs> this book. You know, it's like, don't get mad if you're all pulling up an encyclopedia and you want to look at S's, but you've only got the B, you know? 
So like you said, it does take more conscious effort and mental capacity and energy to really reach out to the other side because it's more comfortable to just stay in our echo chambers. So maybe this is also in part systemic because with so many people, with our economic injustice and so many people just trying to get by, that's really put a lot of strain on people's lives where people maybe have higher baseline stress levels than we used to. And so people are having less and less capacity to be able to do those things that can allow us to unite with people that we may not really agree with at the superficial level. Absolutely. And I think that if you look back at any, any listener that's, that's on this, if you look at your calendar and how busy you were in February, say February 28th, and then how busy you are now, May 28th, and you're kind of like, what's going on? You have a lot more time. You're not filling it with so many extracurriculars and activities because we're all in quarantine, but your stress level is probably higher and you're probably more cooped up and you don't really want to like have difficult conversations. You just want to get outside and see some friends and be there. And I think that you're absolutely right. When I was having these conversations with people over the last couple of years, the response I was getting was, I just don't have time for this. You know, I, 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 bust my butt at work and then I get home and I got to, I got to cook dinner. I got to take care of the kids and, you know, run them to elder extracurriculars and make dinner and, and then come home and help them with their homework and go to bed. And I might have 10 minutes with my significant other before I go to bed and you go, okay, they have no time. And so now what we have is now we've got time, but everyone's stressed. You know, now we've got these financial stresses. You're worried about, will you be a transmitter? Is someone in your family going to get this? Are you going to die from it? Or is your business or job going to be out of the way? So you've got these more fundamental kind of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs stressors that are on you. But even then, that's where I say, if that's where the person's stress level is, you have to meet them there. Mm. And you got to you got to listen to what they're stressed about and find out where they're you know, their anxiety. And a lot of people have economic anxiety right now. And so you have to talk to them. If you want to, you can't go convince them and say, well, you know, we got to close the economy because we got to stop the coronavirus. Cause they're just going to say, you're unsensitive. You don't get me. You're not hearing me. If you listen to what they're saying about their economic anxiety, and then you have a conversation say, well, will that be worse if there's a repeat and we have to open, close, open, close, open, close the economy over the next like six months or a year. And, and, um, we have to go through this two, three, four times. Then you say, Oh yeah, that would be, that'd be way worse. You know? And so it's, it's kind of, you have to have that conversation. And we, we started having those conversations in this book because that was exactly it. There were some people who were saying, you know what, it's gonna be bad. I'd rather take my lumps now and take my, my medicine and then get, and get better. And there's others who are saying, I can't lose two months. My business will go under. You don't understand. Then, I, then I'll be in debt and I'll declare bankruptcy and I have student loans and mortgage payments and, and their whole world is going to unravel. And so both sides, anyone on the issue has to be listening to where that person's anxieties are and then be going, where is a, where's a solution? Where's something that you can do to help that person in that need? Because that's what they care about. Well, I know you've looked at a lot of real world case studies, so these definitely aren't just concepts that you conjured up. I'm wondering what stood out to you most as an example of allyship between unexpected partners that really inspired you and proves that we can work together in spite of our deep differences. Yeah, I mean, there's throughout the 
the book, there's there's so many examples, but two come to mind right off the top of my head. One was some research that we, we found with a, a group in Montana that was dealing with the the reintroduction of the wolves around Yellowstone and and all these ranchers and farmers who for years had been pleading with the federal government to do something to protect their livestock and their land. And you had environmentalists and you had government coming and saying, yes, but we need to have these wildlife corridors because these animals are endangered. And they, neither side was hearing each other. And what the landowners really wanted was they wanted people to hear them and say, you know, I'm willing to let a cow or a calf, you know, get killed by a wolf every year, but I just don't want to go through the, the bureaucratic process of having to document it and fill out forms and then wait forever to get reimbursement and then for things to be questioned. Like if my cow's dead, I just want to check. Like, can you, just... and so what the American Prairie Reserve did was they, they flipped this whole mindset and they said, what if we, what if we went in there and we put wildlife cameras on these, these corridors where these endangered animals are walking and every single time an endangered animal, a wolf, a bear, a cougar, whatever walked across your property, you got a check, you know, each one would be a small check, but every single time it went through there and you saw, and it showed up on camera and we saw it, we would just send you a check. And that way it took the burden from the, the rancher and the farmer from having to prove harm to all of a sudden the proof was there all the time. And they started to see the wildlife less as a nuisance and a liability and now as a financial asset to their way of life. Mm. And they became more open to taking down fences and, you know, channeling the, the, the wildlife quarters where they need to be because the environmentalists got what they wanted and the ranchers and farmers got what they needed. And it was all about just getting to the core of what that issue was. And the second example is, you know, you look at the coal industry, which is, you know, getting absolutely crushed in the United States. And for the most part, politically and in the news, it's been put as a coal versus environmentalist issue. The reality is what's killed coal has been natural gas because natural gas is cheaper. And so all these utilities have switched their, their heat generating sources from coal to natural gas purely because it's cheaper. It had nothing to do with the environment and nothing to do with climate change, but they did. But the, the media and the mindset has been the environmentalists are the ones who are shutting them down or the Democrats are the ones who are trying to shut it down. And so there's groups that we highlight in our book that are reaching out to the coal company or the coal country area to these communities that are absolutely getting devastated. And when you start talking to them, it's not so much about the energy source or the coal. It's what the coal represents. It represents their, their family. It represents what their community has done. It represents sacrifice, but it also represents things that hardships that they've had to put up with, with black lung disease, with mining accidents. These communities, when the coal jobs go away, pretty soon the community, the tax base goes away. You start seeing increasing rates of depression and use of opioids. And that's what they're screaming about. They're screaming about like, we want, we want our communities saved. We want you to care about us. And so when these public-private partnerships in Appalachia kind of reached out to say, instead of it being about coal or, or renewables, let's have it be, let's find you a job and find a way that we can keep the community together and keep the bad out and keep as much good in, then people were listening and saying, yeah, okay, we're willing. And I think those are two kind of big macro examples of that we, we highlight throughout the book of just different ways of thinking once you understand what's truly behind someone's fear and anxiety. 
Well, I really appreciate that this conversation is so full of practical lessons on communication that we can walk away with and apply directly to our day-to-day lives. The final thing I wanted to ask is, I know we have many listeners who have either recently graduated or are looking to pivot in their professional lives, who want to contribute their talents, time, and skill set to supporting sustainability. Your previous book was Sustainability Jobs, The Complete Guide to Landing Your Dream Green Job. So with this being such a vast field with so many avenues of entry, what guidance can you give our listener if they're not sure where to start to see how they can best align their interests, skill set, and this overarching goal we share? That's an awesome question. And the reason we, when I say we, because there was multiple people who contributed to that book. Um, You know, I actually was sitting in a Seattle Mariners game with a bunch of people in the sustainability world. And and we were kind of lamenting that we all were getting these requests for from graduates and people who want to make a career change. Could we do coffee and help them figure it out? And we thought, you know, we should just write collectively one book that get puts all of our opinions in there. So there's so it's not just my book. There's my co-authors as well as 32 other sustainability thought leaders who are in academics, government, business, nonprofit, and even in politics in terms of their thoughts. There's a couple key things that I would say that for any recent grad, one is the best place to start is where you are. So if you're at a school, find ways that you can engage with the, the sustainability department on your campus or with your instructors, even in your classes. Can you change a a research paper or a case study that you're working on to something that's more in line with where you want to go, whether that's around social justice and environmental sustainability. If you're somebody who's currently working, find a way to join the green team or find a way that you can start having conversations internally within your organization to kind of start making some of these small changes to purchase local, to purchase environmentally, to have, you know, if you're going to have fewer meetings, what can you, how can you do them in a greener way? And for those who are kind of trying to make that career change, I mean, obviously now is a, a really tough time, but it's also a very inflective time. And when I, you know, people always come to me and say, you know, can you help me find a job? And I, I tell them, nobody out there is going to tell you how to find the, the perfect job that's going to match you. What you need to do is kind of do a lot of personal work. And that is first kind of an inventory of not just what you've done in your resume, but what are your skills? Where are your passions? And where do your skills and passions align? And I think for a lot of people, you know, that's the issue is that they either have the passion or they have the skills, but they haven't figured out whether where there's alignment. And when they can find that alignment, then they found the sweet spot because then they they know where their motivations are going to come and they know where their skills are going to be good and how they can stand up and they know how to market themselves in that position. And so in the book, Sustainability Jobs, you know, we go through kind of four big areas. How do you figure out how do you make your career transition and how do you line up? There's all the nuts and bolts stuff of how do you set up your resume and your online profile in a way that's going to attract attention. But also it's a lot about how do you network and who do you network with when? And I think for a lot of people, you know, I mean, I'm one of the most connected people in the industry in the Pacific Northwest. And a lot of times someone will come to me when they're just getting started. And, I, you know, my response to them is, don't come to me when you have no clue. Come to me when you've done the work and you've figured out exactly what you want to do and you've had five, ten other conversations with people so you know who it is that you really need to meet and which companies you really want to work at because at that point, then I can help you connect to the people that you need to talk to. When you're still in that stage of just needing a cover letter approved or a resume reviewed, 
Well, that's, that's not the best use of the time, limited time you might have. And so for anyone who's just kind of out there, I tell them like, there's going to be a huge green awakening when we come out of the, the coronavirus. You're even starting to see it right now where the EU has said that when they, when they come out of this, the economic um, plan that they've got coming forward has a lot of green and sustainability elements to it. Businesses are going to be needing people that, that want to do sustainability work. But the reality is for you as anybody who's listening as an individual, it's where are you going to be best positioned to take advantage of that? So if you're somebody who's already in marketing, how can you bring sustainability into marketing? If you're an accountant, how can you bring carbon footprinting into your accounting practice? If you're in sales or marketing, how can you reach out to Gen X and Gen Y consumers who are much more open to you know sustainability benefits and willing to pay a little bit more of a premium? That's where the jobs are. The jobs are kind of in your skill set and how you bring your passion in, not so much into sustainability consultants or being a sustainability director. I'll give a stat for every 100 jobs in sustainability. There's probably three that you're going to find online that are posted as sustainability director, coordinator or consultant. And there's probably like 97 percent of the jobs that are going to be in a traditional field that will have a little bit of sustainability woven into it. And I say, that's where you need to be looking because you're going to be much more fruitful there. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Kevin's work and check out his books, including his latest, How to Talk to the Other Side, you can head to www.sustainablebizconsulting.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Kevin Wilhelm SBC and SBC underscore consulting. All of this will be linked in our show notes that you can find at greendreamer.com. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and generously sharing your insights and expertise. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? As Green Dreamers, I just say, believe in your dream, go for it. Uh, we need all of you in this movement and we need you right now. You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join starting from $2 per month. Again, it's greendreamer.com slash support. Today's song feature is Yarrow by Kim Anderson. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath the trees is scattered with the first star